The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I would love for you to open it to Acts chapter 16 and then 1 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3. That's where we're going to be uh, today. So I was thinking about today's message um, Cody asked me if it was going to be story time with John today, and I said, not today. We'll be back to story time next week. Um, the thing that I was thinking about all week long is just the Bible itself, um, and particularly how much I love the Bible. I think about the ways that God has used his word over the last 25, 26 years now to shape my life and guide my life, and and reveal purpose and meaning for my life, and to convict me of the sin that's in my life. And just over those 25 or 26 years, I've just, I've just grown to love um, God's Word. And that's not because I am, I'm a pastor. Um, it's not because I'm a professional Christian. Um, it's my goal, actually, for you, and this is something that, that we've been talking about for six years. Like, I would love for you to fall in love with God's Word. I would love for you to, to wake up um, and have God's word on your mind. I'm still striving for that. I would love for you throughout the day as you're, as you're just going through your regular work day or school day or retired day, whatever the thing is that you're doing, I would love for you just to have God's word washing over, over your mind. And then at the end of the day, as you get ready for as you get ready for bed, that you would have God's word wash over you. I would just love for you to love God's word. And there's a couple reasons why I love the Bible. And one of them is the Bible is a reminder to me that, that the people we're reading about were real people with real issues. Sometimes we can look at the Bible and we can think, okay, well, that's 2,000 years ago. That doesn't apply to me. I don't have to think about how that works. Um, It's easy for us to kind of categorize uh, characters within the biblical story as maybe movie characters or or television show um, characters. And we have like this big distance, but the Bible is a reminder to me that these are real people with real issues. Uh, The Bible tells us what we need to know. And what I, what I love so much about the Bible is when we, we put all of these pieces together, um, we have the real story about the real power of God. That's what God is trying to communicate to us through his word. Something about himself that he's powerful, that he's real, that he's true. And the story and the power of God is what we call the gospel. And this gospel was spread by real people to real people. And this ought to be good news for us. How many of us are real people in the room? Okay, look, there's not everyone's raising their hand, which gives me some concern. Okay, um, some of you are AI people, I believe. Um, but this, but we, we are real people. We talked about this in, when we introed Thessalonians a few weeks ago. These are, these are people who had jobs and had families and were... Um, were enslaved and had real hardships and 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 that's us right we are we are real people and then we get to spread the gospel to real people 
because there are real people who have real hurts. And the amazing thing about the gospel, for those of us who are Christians and who have accepted this gospel, have realized what the truth of the gospel is and have accepted it and are living it out, we have a hope to live. We have a hope. We have a reason. Christ is my firm foundation. We just sang that song. And those aren't just words on the screen. Okay? This is something that as followers of Christ, we believe. And what that means is, is we, have, we have the hope and the foundation for the thing that the people who aren't believers are looking for. We actually have the answer. We get to share that good news with them. And one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Timothy. So my favorite characters, I want to tell you a little bit about him. This is from Acts um, chapter 16. This is verses 1 to 5. Paul went first. Okay, so just to recap here where, where this is in the story. Paul and Silas had been in, in Antioch and they left. And they were going to go on a tour of all of the churches that they had planted. This is what their, this is what their plan was. They had done one missionary journey. Paul had gone with Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas had a falling out. So Paul asked Silas to join him. And Paul's mission, he's going to go out and he's going to go revisit all of the churches that he had already been to. And they stopped in Lystra and Derbe, and that's Acts 16. Paul went first to Derbe, then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer and his father was a Greek. Now, one of the things that we want to stop at here really quickly is he's, he's in Lystra, we talked about this last week. If we were to flip back a couple of chapters in the book of Acts, we would go to Acts 14. And this is the town where Paul and Barnabas had gone in. They'd healed a man. They were worshipped as gods. They said, no, we're not gods. Let us tell you about him. And then remember, some Jews came from Iconium and they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of town. Right? Paul gets up, walks back into town. And now... Two chapters later, a couple years later, Paul is back in Lystra. Isn't that amazing? So what that means is, and this is kind of a theme that we've been talking about through our study of Thessalonians together, is that you can have a really, I'm going to use the word crappy. It'll be okay. You can have a really crappy encounter in a community with other people. You can be stoned by them almost to the death. And you know what's going to happen? Some of them are going to become Christians. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that counter to what we normally think? It's the complete opposite of what we normally think. Which is why earlier in Thessalonians, Paul said that the mission was a success because people had come to Christ. So Paul had gone to Lystra. He gets stoned, basically again, run out of town. And now he and Silas are back because they want to see how the church is. Well, how was the church? They meet Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer. His father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left. I'm sure that was an interesting conversation. For everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. So just a bit more context. They had this big debate in the church in Acts chapter 15 about what someone needed to do to become a follower of Christ. There's a group of people who said, no, the people need to become Jews before they become Christians. 
the elders and the the leaders and the apostles in Jerusalem said no. So they're going out. Now they've got to share all of this news with everyone. They're going around. And Paul and Silas pick up this guy named Timothy. And the reason they picked him up is because he was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. And then the next several chapters, as we read through chapter 16, when they go um, into Philippi and go into prison, and then go into Thessalonica in chapter 17, and then Berea, and then Athens. Now we're getting more details about what this little mission trip looked like for these people. And what we see is Timothy has this first row seat, this front row seat, to what making disciples look like. Because Timothy, Timothy's from Lystra. The other believers thought well of him, but he's, he's pretty young, he's pretty new. And Timothy, or Paul and Silas, see something in Timothy, and they invite Timothy to join them based on what these other people are saying. So as they're going through these cities, Timothy is learning how to be a disciple maker. And what's so fascinating about what it meant to be a disciple maker was the making of disciples involved hardship and disappointment. Imagine getting invited to join someone on a mission trip and you show up in Philippi and the two guys who invited you are in prison. How would you feel in the midst of that situation? Would you maybe head back to Lystra? Would you maybe think you were done at that point? But something amazing happens, and if you're familiar with the story, you know there's an earthquake while they're in prison, and the gates fall off, and and they're freed, and, and all of these people in Philippi become followers of Christ. So Timothy sees this, and then they move on to Thessalonica, and he sees Paul for three weeks preach and teach in the synagogue, and then a riot happens, and they have to flee town. If you didn't go home after Philippi, are you going home after Thessalonica? Like at some point, right, we, we would be asking some questions. And what Timothy sees is the making of disciples involved hardship and difficulty, sacrifice and suffering. But because God was faithful, the fruit of all of that challenge was spiritual growth. So despite the physical things that are taking place, despite outward appearance, because God is faithful, there's spiritual growth. There's change. So we're going to pick up in 1 Thessalonians at the end of chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. If, you're, if you have the YouVersion app, these are all verses are in there. But we're going to pick up in 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 2, verse 17. Dear brothers and sisters, After we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy, and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. One of the things I love so much about this little section, these four little verses of Scripture, is the intense language that's used in it. He says, he says we were separated. We tried very hard. We had an intense longing. 
We wanted very much. We tried again and again. We were prevented by Satan. You give us hope and joy. You are our proud reward and crown. As we stand, you are our pride and joy. Why all of this intense language? Why is Paul using these terms? Well, the the answer is simple. He loves these people. He loves them. He founded this church, and, and Paul and Silas and Timothy had a relationship with them. This was not, well, we founded this church in Thessalonica, and we sort of have this loose affiliation with, with them, and every once in a while, the church in Thessalonica kind of crosses our mind, and we think about them, but then something else happens, and we move on. I think this is kind of our day and our age. Right? We, we are so distracted by other things. And this, this isn't Paul, this isn't Silas, this isn't Timothy. These are people who, who, have, who have been a part of founding a church and are a part of this church in Thessalonica and, and, and they're in it for, with them. They love these people. I think this relationship is what, is what Paul meant when he would later write about the daily burden of concern for all the churches. See, as we remember, we talked about last week, Paul left Thessalonica. He left the riot behind. He left Jason behind. And that wasn't because he was abandoning them. Can you imagine what Paul woke up thinking about in Thessalonica? Man, is Jason okay? Are the people that we lived with at Jason's house, are they all right? Did they make it? Is Jason's, ho- is Jason's house still standing? Any one of you feel a little bit of that concern this week? How much hail damage did we get? Imagine being Paul, coming through this situation, coming through this riot and leaving. In my mind, I imagine it's all Paul could think about was the people that he left back in Thessalonica. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and now they were bound by something. And this is something for us as followers of Christ. When we accept Jesus, we are bound to one another. We are supposed to be committed to one another. We are supposed to be in it with one another. This is the kind of concern what we're seeing here is the kind of concern that we ought to have for our church. One of the really hard things as we think about how, how we read the Bible and how we understand the Bible and how we apply the Bible to our lives is sometimes it seems so difficult. So what we have to do, we have to look under the surface a little bit. We have to move the dirt. And what we're seeing here in the person of Paul is someone who profoundly loves his church. And as we're going to read, they profoundly love him. And a question that we ought to ask of ourselves is, do I have those same feelings for the church of which I'm a part of? And if not, why? Why don't I have these feelings? So Paul's going to do something about it. Let's read chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Finally, so remember Paul's mindset, I want to return, I want to come back. 
Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We send him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by, by the troubles you are going through. But you know we are destined for such troubles. For even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as you well know. That's why when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. There's a little bit more intense language here that Paul is using. When we could stand it no longer. We could stand it no longer. We decided to stay alone. We sent Timothy. And here's the thing. Timothy is not the B team. Timothy is not the B team. But he was young and he was new. And at this point, he's probably been with Paul and Silas and Luke for a year. Maybe less. And if we think back to what we read in Acts chapter 16 a few minutes ago, his mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. So he had a, he had a foot in both worlds. He, could, he knew the customs, he knew the history, he knew the languages of both people. So who better to send to Thessalonica than Timothy? Timothy was sent by Paul. And this is what Paul says about Timothy. He's our brother and he's God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. Because my guess is, in Thessalonica, six months, eight months after all of those events happened in Acts 17, they want Paul to come back. And you know who they got? They got Timothy. And because I know people, and because you know people, there was probably a little disappointment when Timothy showed up. What they wanted was Paul. What they wanted was Silas. And instead, they got Timothy. So Paul, because he loves Timothy and he loves the church, he, he gives them Timothy's qualifications. And then he tells them the mission, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to keep them from being shaken by the troubles they were going through, to find out whether their faith was still strong. So this is why he's going there. He's there to make them disciples. He wants to check on them because he loves them so much. That he sent someone to see how they're doing. I want you to remember back to what we talked about last week. To the way that Paul described his behavior when they were in Thessalonica. He described it three ways. He said, we were undemanding like infants. When we came to you, when we visited you, we were undemanding like infants. I think that's kind of a weird analogy. Because I think sometimes we think infants are demanding. Has anyone ever thought an infant is demanding? But let's pause for a minute. Let's, let's go up to the 60,000 foot view. If, if you're a six month old and you're hungry and you can't speak, what are you going to do? Whoever that was, perfect. Thank you, Alexa. I knew that was you. Your parents knew that was you. They cry, right? Let me ask you a question. Is an infant demanding or is it just communicating what its needs are? 
It's just communicating its needs. So when Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy are in Thessalonica, they're not, they're not making demands of the people in Thessalonica. They're just presenting what their need is. They're communicating what their spiritual need is. The law of God can't save you. I know you thought it could, but now that Jesus has come, now that the Messiah is here, that's how you find salvation. That's not demanding. It's communicating a need. The next way it was described was they were like a mother feeding and caring. That's what Paul says. When we were with you, we were like a mother. We fed you, we cared for you. And then he uses the analogy of the father. Pleading with them, encouraging them, and urging them to live lives that God would consider worthy. So what Timothy is going to do when he arrives, he's, he's going to mimic those same things. He's going to copy those same kind of behaviors. Do you remember his charge? To strengthen them, to encourage them, to keep them from being shaken by the troubles they were going through, and then to find out if their faith is still strong. See, this is just another way of saying that I sent Timothy with you to be undemanding like a baby, to feed and care for you like a mother, and to plead with and urge you and encourage you like a father. That's why I sent Timothy to you. So that he can see how you're doing. He can see for themselves what were the behaviors they were exhibiting. What was the trajectory of their obedience? Are they doing what they were called to do? Are they living in accordance with their faith? And what's interesting is the Thessalonians could have written words. Hey, Paul, we're all doing great here. And isn't that easy to do? How many of you have ever responded to the question, how are you, with the word fine, when you were, in fact, not fine? Okay? So what Paul's going to do, Paul is uninterested in words. So he's going to send someone to look at the trajectory of their actions. He's going to send someone to look at their behaviors. And the reason he did this and I haven't decided how much I want to harp on this yet today, so bear with me. The reason he sent Timothy here was because physical proximity and physical presence matters. Physical proximity and physical presence, being in the same space with other human beings, matters. Especially when it comes to discipleship. See, Timothy went because it mattered that he was there. It mattered that they were together. And as followers of Christ in 2023, it matters that we are together. This physical proximity and this physical presence still matters. In a culture where it seems like it doesn't. Being physically present with one another matters. It makes a difference. Timothy was sent there to make disciples. To continue the work that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had started in Thessalonica. He was sent back to do it. Let's pick up here in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 3. But now Timothy has just returned, bringing us good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. 
So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. He gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. How we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we earnestly... We pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to fill in the gaps in our faith. So remember, Paul wants to go back. He can't, so he sends Timothy. He gives Timothy a mission, a purpose, and then Timothy is going to come back and he's going to report what he hears. He's going to report what he saw. And now Paul is writing this letter because Timothy has returned and it was good news. They remember the visit with joy, and they wanted to see Paul and Silas and Timothy as badly as they wanted to go back to Thessalonica. I think the way we described this a few weeks ago is the church at Thessalonica wasn't just surviving, but they were thriving. And isn't that good news? Despite all the things that had happened, despite Jason being dragged out of his house and those who lived there with him, despite all of these people being dragged before the city council and having to pay bond, After just three weeks, the people in Thessalonica who had converted to Christianity, they didn't just say, ah, to heck with that. It'll just be easier if we we just continue to be Jews and meet in the synagogue. No, what happened was, after just three weeks, because of the presence of God in the lives of these new Christians, they were thriving. The church was thriving. And Paul and Silas, and they, as they write back now to the Thessalonians, they are greatly encouraged in the midst of their own trials and suffering. Because see, Paul and Silas have moved on. They might still be in Athens. They might have moved on to Corinth. And by judging what we've read so far in the book of Acts, just a few short chapters, if Philippi was a grind, If Thessalonica was a grind, if Berea was a grind, then chances are Athens and Corinth were just as hard. In fact, Corinth was probably worse. One of the things that we've kind of made the decision of over the past several weeks, we were going to start Genesis in the fall. We've decided to move that to next year. We're going to read through the letters to the church at Corinth. And it might take us a year to get through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're, like we're going into it very open-handed. But Paul is in a new place. And if their past experience, what we read about is any indication, whether it's in Athens or Corinth, they are, they're facing some struggles. And what Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica is, We see how you have responded in the midst of all of these troubles, that you are not just surviving and you are thriving, and that that fills us with such warm feelings. That is such an encouragement to us to see, because you now, like when we came to you, we were the example for you. And now what Paul is saying is you are an example to us. The way you endure hardship is an example to us. So when I, Paul, get up in the morning and I'm going to go to the market and I'm going to preach the gospel and it's going to be hard, I'm going to remember my friends in Thessalonica. 
And I'm going to be encouraged by that. He says, we've given us new life because you stood firm. He thanked God for the Thessalonians. He had great joy because of them. And then he says this, I'm praying earnestly to God to see you again. You know why? Because physical proximity and physical presence matters. It matters that they're in the room together. It matters that they're in the same town together, doing life together, having meals together, being made into disciples together. Later, John would write in, I believe, 3 John, Something to the effect of, I have more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and pen because I want to come and talk to you. Wouldn't we rather have a face-to-face conversation? Like, is anybody kind of tired of texting? I mean, it's easy, it's convenient, but aren't there times where texting doesn't do it? Have you ever hit that limit when you're sending a text and then you like do the weird thing, you call someone? It has a call feature on your phone. And there are some times where that call feature isn't best. You know what's best? Having a face-to-face conversation. And Paul knows this. So he tells them, what I'm praying about for you, I'm so thankful that you are thriving and not just surviving. I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful for that. And what I want to do is I just want to come and be with you. And I'm praying earnestly that God will allow that because we need to fill in the gaps in your faith. And this is something that we need to pause and talk about for a moment. See, there's a need for continual growth. What Paul didn't do was plant this church in Thessalonica and have this immediate rush of converts, of, of Jews and Gentiles, and not a few prominent women, according to the text, And Paul didn't say, well, discipleship's done. They know everything they need to know. They're good. No, because he had a relationship with them. And he knew that there were things that they didn't know. There were gaps in their faith. And one of the things that I would love for us to see as a body, as a body, as individuals, is that each one of us has gaps in our faith. It doesn't matter how long you've been a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have gaps in your faith. There are things you don't know. There are things I don't know. There are things, he's not in here today, Dave Robinson doesn't know. Right? I mean, there are just things that we don't know. And what we need is is a discipling process. We need someone to come alongside of us. We need to come alongside someone else to fill in the gaps in our faith. And this is why, as a church, this is one of the reasons why we have pastors and elders and team leaders. And and this is why we have you. One of the things we'll talk about in a second is discipleship is a reciprocal relationship. And here's what I mean by that means we both get something out of it. This is a reciprocal process, reciprocal process. When I'm in a discipling relationship with someone, I don't care if they've been a Christian for a, for a week. 
there are things that I learn about my faith from that person. And there are things that they learn from me. This is why we are called to be a body. This is why physical proximity and physical presence matters. Because discipleship is really hard to do if it's on pen and paper. That's why Paul wants to go back. Because there's a limit to what the text can do. And I love the Bible. It points me to Jesus. It points me to my need for Jesus. It reveals to me my sin. It does all of those things. And what, what I need is a discipling relationship with another human being. To read and study the Bible together. So one of the things that we need to be reminded of is just as Timothy is not the B squad, neither are you. You're not the B squad. It doesn't matter how much Bible you think you don't know. You're not the B squad. You're actually God's plan. This, isn't this crazy? This, look around at one another for a second. I think I've done this before and you all laughed when I said it last time. You're God's plan. The person next to you is God's plan. Would you, let me, would you have picked you? Are these the people you would have picked? Like, isn't that crazy to imagine that God has entrusted his mission and his purpose with us? Flawed human beings who have a tendency to be self-centered have a tendency to not be focused on what God has for us. And God has chosen us. Isn't that great news? I think it's amazing news. And what needs to happen is we need to remember that in a disciple-making reciprocal relationship, we need to remember that we each have a part to play. If that is going to be mutually beneficial to one another, we each have a part to play in the making of disciples. As I was rereading through 1 Thessalonians 2, one of the things that I realized was the Thessalonians had to receive Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke as undemanding. So when Paul talks about this, we went to Thessalonica, we were undemanding. And you know what the church had to do? They had to receive them as undemanding. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. The church at Thessalonica had to allow themselves to be cared for and fed. They had to recognize that they needed to be cared for. They, have to, they had to recognize that they needed to be fed. The church at Thessalonica had to allow themselves to be considered the children of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, as their father figure. So when their father figures pled with them and urged them and encouraged them to live a life of holiness, what they had to do is they had to be humble and they had to see in Paul, Paul Silas, Timothy, and Luke that they had something to give them. They had to submit themselves to these four men. And the reason is simple, because they had gaps. They had gaps in their faith. And what the church at Thessalonica was humble enough to do was recognize that they had gaps in their faith. They were humble enough to recognize that they didn't know everything. 
And I think this is something for, for 2023 Americans, this is really hard for us to grasp. That we don't know things. It's really hard for us to humble ourselves. And what the church at Thessalonica had to do was place themselves under the authority, not just of these leaders, because remember, they left. So a question that we have to ask ourselves is, who was running the show when Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke were gone? Who was in charge? I think they all were. I think they all were. I think they looked back on those, those three weeks worth of teaching and they had the Holy Spirit and they probably got together and they said, you know what, like we need to figure this out. We need to serve. We need to love one another. We need to recognize that there's a way to live that doesn't lead to being called worthy by God. We need to submit to one another. We need to be with one another. And I think for us, in order for us to grow, we must do the same thing. See, we have to remember that there's a way to live our lives in a way that God does not consider worthy. That God does not consider honorable. And we also have to recognize that that's our bent. That's our default switch. Whether we have, like we're being made into new people, we've been justified by God, we're Christians, those things can be true. But I know enough about me that there are some times where my default switch is to not be obedient to God. And my guess is, is that's true for, for you, whether you would admit it or not, whether you have the humility to admit that or not. See, the church needs one another. We need one another. It's not just the pastors, elders, team leaders, small group leaders. It is one another. And the reality is we're not going to find that in isolation. This is why physical proximity and physical presence matters. Because if it's just me sitting at home, I can talk myself into all sorts of chicanery in my life and to all sorts of sinful behavior. And what I need is someone's to come alongside me with whom I'm in relationship with and call me on it. That's what we need as Christians. And this is why, this is why we gather. This is why we do this whether it's here on Sunday morning or in small groups or Bible studies or one-on-one or -on -one discipling relationships, that, that's why this matters. Because we will waver. This is why our pastors and elders are available to meet with you. This is what we want to do. This is why, as Christians, you ought to meet with one another. There are two females that I know who are in a discipling relationship with one another. And the crazy thing is, there's not a pastor or an elder or a team leader to be found. They've just decided, they have decided that they want to be made in disciples with one another. 
And I know it's just not those two. I know there are other discipling relationships within our body. And I would urge you and encourage you and plead with you to find that other person. You don't have to wait for us. The church at Thessalonica had no one to point to and say, well, we've been waiting for Paul to get a small groups ministry going here at the church in Thessalonica. It sure would be great if Silas would do that. Luke, is that why, or Timothy, is that why you came back? Because you're going to set up serving teams? No, see, they did this on their own. And honestly, without those relationships, without those discipling relationships, you're not going to grow without them. You won't. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Just means you're going to have gaps in your faith, and those gaps are going to persist. And we encourage you to enter into discipling relationships. Because our pastors and elders, we have lots of conversations about you. We have lots of discussions. And one of the things that's been kind of under the, under the surface, that's been kind of percolating, and I think, it's, I think it's starting to come up right now, just in the last three months, I think it's starting to come up is, is this. How do we make disciples of those who are outside of our immediate sphere of influence. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I, I lead a, we lead a small group, Anna and I lead a small group in our house on Thursday nights. I lead a small group here on Wednesday nights during the school year. The people that are in that, those two small groups, like those people are within my sphere of influence. So I, I know what my discipling relationship looks like with those people. And because I've been in small group, and if you're a small group leader or you're in a small group, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you've been in relationship with these people, you can kind of see their trajectory of discipleship, right? You can kind of see the a trajectory of discipleship is not a straight line. Like, this is you now, this is where you're going to be, and it's just straight, but it more looks like this, right? But because it's ever going up, that's a trajectory. So I can be in relationship with people that, I, that are in my small group. If you're a team leader, you can be in relationship with people that are on your ministry team, and you can see their trajectory of discipleship, which kind of gives you a good indication of like where, where someone's at spiritually. Now, they can fake it, but it's hard. And the issue is, what about the people who, which is most, what about the people who aren't in small group? What about the people who aren't serving? What does, what does the influence of pastors and team leaders and elders, what does that look like to those who aren't in those relationships? Now, some of them are in that relationship where I have one other person, right? Right? Like, that's good. We, we want to encourage that. We recommend that you do that. But what does making disciples look like with the rest of the people who aren't in those things? This is, this is again, this is the percolating question that I think is, is, starting to, is starting to bubble out. And it's a great conversation for us to have. 
And we know that we need to increase our number of small groups and we're working toward that. We need to increase the way we talk about serving as a means to grow spiritually. We were trying to figure that one out. But here's the thing. Because disciple making is reciprocal, both parties have a part. Every single one of us, every single one of us who wants to be made into a disciple of Jesus has a responsibility. Those team leaders and pastors and elders and other people, like they can't do it all. They can't do all the work. We have to receive we, as a body, have to receive what be, we're being given as un, in an undemanding way. Sometimes I fear that when we talk about serving or small groups or giving, sometimes I fear that what people hear is we're being demanding. You must do this. You have to do this. And the reality of it is, it's just, honestly, it's just an invitation. And I wonder if your reception of that, of the way you receive what we're communicating, I wonder if that has more to do with you than what we're saying. I wonder, are we stifling the Holy Spirit? And it's just easier to say, well, these guys just are being demanding on me. I promise you, we're not. There's not a single demanding thing that gets said in a pastor or an elders meeting. But it is an invitation. I think we need to allow ourselves to be cared for and fed. We need to allow ourselves to be considered children with our leaders as the father figure. And the reason for this is because we all have gaps. We don't know things. And what's needed is a, is a posture of humility on both sides. What would it be like for us as members of the body? So I say us because I'm a member of the body. What would it be like for me to have a posture of humility that when someone says something to me that is challenging and maybe stings a bit, my first response is, well, they just want me to feel bad. Like, what would it be like for that not to be my first response? What if the leaders that God has placed over in authority over me as a church, what if they actually know better than I do about what my soul needs? See, when we went to Marysville Christian Church 27 years ago, if we just thought that we knew better than what the Bible said, we never would have become Christians. I want to encourage you to humble yourself and place yourself under the authority of those whom God has placed over you. This is for your good. This is the hope of God for the church at Thessalonica. It's God's desire for all churches. Let's finish out. Let's read the last three verses, four verses of 1 Thessalonians 3. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring you to us very soon. Bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. 
May he as a result make your heart strong, blameless and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. The intense language is back. Very soon, make your love grow and overflow. Make your heart strong. Make your hearts blameless. Make your hearts holy. Because the reality is there's a day's coming where Jesus is going to return and he's going he's to be bringing people with him. We're going to talk more about this next week. Paul talks more about this in chapter 4. But there's a day coming where Jesus is bringing his people with him. And in order for us to be counted among them, we must be his disciples. We must be his disciples. And we must make disciples of others. And I believe this is going to include hardship and difficulty, sacrifice and suffering. And because God is faithful, the fruit will be our own discipleship and the discipleship of others. And we will all grow. And the question that we have to ask is, is this something that we want? Do I want to be made into a disciple? Yes or no? Do I want to be his disciple? If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the easiest thing in the entire world. Easiest thing in the entire world. If you're not a disciple of Jesus and you, you want in on this life, you want to be with him, you want to be in this space where you're learning and growing about how to be a faithful follower of Jesus, believe that he is the Lord, acknowledge and repent of your sin, be baptized and confess that Jesus is Lord with your life afterwards. Like that's really it. And that's hard and it's going to be suffering and it's going to be difficult, but it's what God calls us to. And it's the first step. And if you are a follower of Christ, what, what Paul wants us to recognize from this is that discipleship is a lifelong trajectory. It's something that never ends. I would love to tell you it's going to get easier. People who are younger, people who are younger than 52 years old, here's what you need to hear. It's never going to get easier. And I know people who are older than 52 years old are going to say, it's never going to get easier. And it's not about being easy. It's about trusting in the work that Jesus has done. And living at a trajectory of faithfulness. So that we can have this hope. And I don't know what your next step is, but it's not nothing. What I would encourage you to do is to ask someone. This is on you. This is your responsibility. I want to be a disciple. I don't know how. Can you help me? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would reveal to us our next step. I ask that you would humble us, that we would trust in your mercy and goodness as we seek to be your disciple. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.